The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Okay, today we are going to be reading from Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. So again, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, and if I could get you to stand while we read the message. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that bud it, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is, a, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not made of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve our living God? This is the word of the Lord. morning. Let's pray. Father God, um, even just listening to this scripture reading, we we get this sense that um, we're reminded that we're part of something that that is very ancient and very big. And I pray that you would bring that to life for us this morning. There's a lot of details here with which we may be unfamiliar. Um, I ask that you would give us uh, insight, that you would show us not, not merely the facts, but the significance behind these things, and that you would glorify yourself through that and change our lives, we pray, so that we're not merely carriers of knowledge, but we're livers of truth. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine that you walk into a coffee house and you see a group there of, of men in their mid-30s and they're all intensely listening as one of them is telling a story. So there I was, separated from my platoon after our armored caravan got attacked. Disoriented, I wandered through the hills for a while before I came to the ruins of a bombed-out village. There seemed to be some activity, so I carefully approached Observing through windows and from behind rocks and walls, I learned that a group of American and British civilians were being held hostage by the terrorist fighters. So I fastened my scope onto my rifle, and I took strategic shots, moving then hiding, moving then shooting, until all 15 of the terrorist captors were either down or running. Well, after overhearing this account, you go up to the table in amazement, and you're like, wow, can I just shake your hand? And then the, the speaker looks a little bit shocked, and he says, oh, sorry, dude, we were just talking about playing the new Call of Duty Modern Warfare game. Okay, now imagine that you walk into the VFW, and around the bar, you hear a similar sort of conversation. Only the man speaking looks like he's seen a thing or two, and, and the sobriety with which he's talking about these things convinces you this was no game. Now, maybe this is an outlandish imagined scenario. Probably Lawrence is laughing right now. Um, but I think it shows how important the line is between depiction and reality. The line between depiction and reality. So in this scenario, both men did something potentially honorable and difficult, but one did it on the true battlefield in Afghanistan. The other did it in a digital world from his living room. Now, if we ask the actual veteran, hey, when you were a kid, did you ever, did you ever play military video games? They'd probably say, sure, yeah, that definitely played a role in pushing me toward my career as a soldier, but once I got to the field, I discovered that the actual combat would require something quite different. Well, today we're going to talk about moving past the virtual into the real reality. Not in warfare, like the example I gave, but rather in escaping the corruption of this world and entering into salvation. When we consider the question of how can a sinful humanity come to dwell again with God in holiness then we too need to be careful not to confuse the helpful representation with the thing it's meant to depict. So in the passage before us today, the author of Hebrews, he's giving, he wants to give courage to doubting Christians by showing them the perfection of what Jesus really did accomplish for us. And he does that through returning to the virtual by giving us a descriptive tour of the Jewish temple. He wants to remind us of all of the images and the objects and the symbols there, not so that we can worship them, but so that we can worship the one who fulfills all of those constructs and carries that virtual world through to reality. And that's really our only point today, that Jesus, in Jesus, all of the symbols, all of the dramatizations of life with God have been carried through to reality. Christ appeared to bring us from virtual to reality. So in the, in the place where 
we approach God in the sacrifice that gains us entry, in the permanence of that access, all of that, in Christ it moves from just virtual to the lasting reality. And it's, you know, it's absolutely fundamental to our human experience that we rely on symbols and structures and, and sort of an acting out of certain things in order to feel connected to whatever it is that we worship. Uh, this is true even in secular society. So you, you can see people, you know, who get super into different seasonal festivals or they uh, have like a, a cult-like sports following, right, with all the paraphernalia. Uh, or you can think of even how we enter into music and movie worlds uh, to, to reignite a, a certain sense of belonging to something transcendent. Humans rely on things that we see, that we hear, that we touch. We rely on these things to understand the things that we can't see, but that we do value. You know, I've, I've been inside Islamic mosques and Buddhist temples and Russian Orthodox churches, and in, in a sense, it's all the same. There's the smells of old wood and stone mixed with incense. There's the glimmer of candles or oil lamps, the sounds of chants or memorized prayers. There's, you know, the sight of shiny objects that no one can touch because they're in the, the zone that only the, the priestly figures can go. And there's the ritual. In all of these scenarios, there's the, there's the ritual that has to be repeated just so because of what it communicates about the divine. Now, if you've ever toured an old religious site like that, you know what I'm talking about. You've witnessed this, that, that for better or for worse, depending on the actual ideas being communicated, these temples overwhelm the senses with, with how they speak of ancient power and mysteries and for exactly that reason, our Bible explains that God preserved his true worship in the Jewish people in their construction of a physical tabernacle and temple so that humanity could understand certain realities about, uh, about God that you know, would be dramatized, in a way, in this mysterious building. So he did this to preserve the knowledge of him. And that knowledge wouldn't stay dramatized. It wouldn't stay merely symbolic it would this was a, a precursor to the day when these things would be lived out in reality across the entire cosmos so we need to understand the jewish temple and our, our text starts now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness we can see an emphasis on the word earthly there it was earthly it was temporary it was corruptible even though it's communicating these heavenly realities, this was a structure built by men. Verse 2, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. So um, the author is calling this section that he's describing the, the first section. What he means is it's the first restricted access section. Um, it was the first section that was covered on top as well as on the sides. Both the tabernacle that the Israelites had in the wilderness and then the, the temple that was built in Solomon's days, it had three main sections. Yeah, thanks for the, the diagram. You can see this, um, the tabernacle there. And all the diagrams we're going to show today, all the pictures are taken straight from the ESV study Bible. So if you have one of those, you can look at that on your own as well. The outer court is where the common people would go to offer their sacrifices on the altar. And there's a big basin there called the sea for the priests to wash their hands and their feet in. 
But the area behind a first curtain, that is in what verse 2 is calling the holy place, it's there that there was a lampstand or a menorah. Uh, the Jews associated the, the seven lamps of the menorah with the seven luminaries that are visible to the naked eye. So the sun, the moon, five planets. And the lampstand as a whole symbolized God's presence with his people. And that's exactly why uh, Jesus, in Revelation 2, he rebuked the church of Ephesus. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. He's saying he would remove the light of God from their midst and they would just be a dead church. Even if people kept attending, there would be no light. They'd be left in spiritual darkness. So the light of the lampstand represented the presence of God with his people. Yet the lampstand also represented something further because it was in the shape of a tree with blossoms underneath, underneath each flame. And many Jewish rabbis and Christian teachers alike have seen an echo here of the tree of life. God is the life giver, and God is the light giver. And both are found in the gift of his presence. In the holy place, there was also a table in that section with bread that was called the bread of the presence. There were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the fullness of the people of God. And this bread would be replaced every week, and then the old bread could be eaten by the priests if they did it right there in that holy place. And uh, having this bread there, it both looked backward to when God communed with his people on Sinai, when he, he ate, he, he had the, the uh, elders on top of the mountain, and they had food put before them. Um, and it also looks forward to the ultimate goal of fellowship with God forever. That we see at, at the end of the story is like a feast. So in addition to at least, you know, in the outer court, there's at least twice daily there are sacrifices. And then in this first restricted area of the temple, there's so much that needed to be maintained. Priests would burn incense morning and evening, which represented the prayers of the people. And priests would change the bread of the presence weekly. And priests would have to keep the lamps lit all through the night. All of this was part of the drama of displaying truths about God in a tangible way for the people. Now verse 3 moves us further on our tour of the temple. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the author himself says we can't speak of these things in detail. I won't stay here too long, but I just want to fill in a few details that would have been known to the original recipients of Hebrews. First, the curtain in front of the most holy place. That was a big deal. It was thick and heavy and, and ornate blue and, and purple and scarlet colors to represent the sky and majesty and fire. And on it were stitched a design of cherubim and also stars. More about the cherubim later, but the, the idea was that by passing through this curtain, you were leaving the visible realm and you were entering the heavenly dimension where God dwells. The most holy place was a room with the dimensions of a cube. It was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. 
And the otherliness of this space, this, it was accentuated by a thick cloud of incense that was to be burned before the high priest went in. And, and that would be generated from the incense altar and then spread with a censer in, uh, in front of the priest as he went. So the incense altar, we're told, was gold. The Ark of the Covenant was gold. In those days, gold was priceless. It, it was only available to royalty or in scenarios like this that had reference to the divine. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know about this from the Indiana Jones movie, it was a rectangular box in which there were objects that pertained to the identity of Israel as God's people and also to the covenant that they had with God. So an urn full of manna was there, a sampling of the, the miraculous bread that God had used to sustain his people in the wilderness. Then there was Aaron's rod that had budded. The events behind that are told in Numbers chapter 16 and 17. And the point of it all was that uh, the authority of a priest, that was designated by God himself. So Aaron's rod um, proved that the, the Levitical priesthood was God's priests. And, um, and likewise, it showed that if another priesthood would ever come, such as in the order of Melchizedek, like we've been reading about, it would have to be at God's initiative. There were the tablets of the covenant, those pieces of stone with the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. And these laws were the formal terms of their covenant relationship. But you know, even more important than the contents of the ark was the lid of the ark itself. This was called the mercy seat because it was there that the high priest would sprinkle blood so that the people would receive God's mercy. It was the place where God's covenant love towards sinners was realized. Now this gold lid had golden figures of cherubim on both ends. Cherubim are angelic guardian beings. So don't picture angels that look like people with flowy hair and feathery wings. Think more like living creatures. Uh, they're often depicted as lions with wings and human faces. The cherubim first appear in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are evicted from Eden. And we read that at the east of the garden, God placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And guarding is exactly what these cherubim were doing as well. Not the golden statues, but the actual cherubim that they represented. They were here above the ark because the mercy seat is also referred to as the footstool of God. So the suggestion there, the footstool, the suggestion is the unseen God himself had his feet, so to speak, on top of this covenant box. And in this way, the most holy place was like a portal or a gateway into an altogether different realm. And this is where our video game illustration breaks down a bit. We're not saying that, that these were just powerless representations like a video game. No. If we're to compare the Jewish temple to any game, it would probably be like Jumanji, where you, you get sucked into something that's more real. The temple was this unique place. It was like, like a wardrobe into Narnia. It was like in, in the Disney movie Encanto where Casita has rooms where, that are bigger on the inside, right? 
So similarly, though the most holy place, it was only a 15 feet cube, but it was like a portal to the throne room of the ruler of all. So now that we have that setting, let's read more about the drama that played out in the temple. Verse 6. These preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the ordinary sins of the people. We saw how the whole structure of the temple is pointing inward to the most exclusive section. And we see here that only one man in a generation, and and he only once a year, can go into the most holy place. And he did it with great fear and trembling. So what what these verses are describing is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was detailed most fully in Leviticus chapter 16. So notice that the high priest had to make an offering first for himself, right? He... Even the, even the most special of ministers here, he needed protection lest he die. He was just an unworthy representative of unworthy people who are trying to come before a holy God. And notice that he could only enter this one time, once a year. This infrequent, this limited nature of the access that was given through the temple, that in itself showed that this was not a permanent solution, Right? The curse of sin and death had evidently not been broken. Lasting righteousness had not been established just through the establishment of this temple. So it's kind of interesting that this greatest of all Jewish festivals, the the Day of Atonement, a cause for great celebration, at the same time, it most clearly shows the limitations of this system because as soon as the Day of Atonement's over, a new sacrifice would be needed. You sin the next morning, you got to sit with that for another year. One pastor wrote, The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him, and yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance. God's love calls the sinner near, but God's righteousness keeps him back. The Holy One bids Israel to build him a house in which he will dwell, but then forbids them from entering his presence there. And that, in a nutshell, is the temple conundrum. And I want to say here that, unfortunately, there are many people hanging around the periphery of the Christian life who live like these two conflicting truths are still the case. Do you feel like you'd really like want to worship and serve this good God, but every time you draw near, your sin shows its ugly head, and then you just kind of lurk back into the shadows. I want to remind you that Jesus came to end exactly that dynamic. Love does call you near, but God's righteousness no longer needs to keep you back. Please talk to God when you feel most dirty. Please open his word when you've just spent a night disobeying it. Please come to church when you feel like everyone would reject you if they really knew you. No, in Christ, the unclean are welcomed and are counted as righteous if only they will trust in this gift and come. But at the time we're reading about in the Old Covenant, when the Jewish temple still stood, the existence of these barriers showed that the story wasn't finished because these these limitations 
were evidence that we hadn't returned to the Garden of Eden, that the curse of sin and death were still in place. We could only enjoy sneak peeks of restoration. But it would not always be that way. Verse 8 talks about the limited access to the Holy of Holies in this way. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Parentheses, which is symbolic for the present age. That's mind-blowing. Do you see what he's saying? He's, he's saying that these spatial separations in the temple, these different levels of entry, they actually also represented a separation of times. So not only was the temple a microcosm of the whole cosmos, with, with the, the part behind the curtain representing the unseen realms. But no, this was also a sort of time diagram with the Holy of Holies representing the time when heaven and earth will be joined. That's where all this is going. The Old Covenant worshipers could not go there yet. We, in, in our high priest Jesus, we can go there. Through him, we do already participate in the age to come when heaven and earth will be reunited. We time travel, in a sense, because we live in this already but not yet time of overlapping ages. But even now, even right now, we have a right to enter God's presence, and we are in process of being permanently ushered in. More on that later. But let's just say that the high priest, the high priest in the Jewish temple, he provided a preview of, of Christ's entrance into heaven on the final day of atonement. And the Jewish high priest provided a preview of our certain entrance in the age to come. The way was not open, but the day of atonement pointed toward that coming change. Next we read that according to the arrangement they had at that time, gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but dealt only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. It's not speaking about the Protestant Reformation there. It's, it's the Reformation he's speaking of is when the Old Covenant gave way to the New, when Jesus began his ministry and eventually went to the cross, showing that he was the high priest. He was the one needed sacrifice. His body was the true temple where God and mankind would commune together. But until then, there was no way to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So you see the physical curtain in front of the most holy place. That was a form of separation, but it wasn't the only thing. It's not the only thing that separates humanity from God. There's our own consciences to deal with. Whenever we're honest, we know that our sin has erected our own barriers between us and God, and the conscience reveals that. The conscience tells us about ourselves. For some people, the guilty conscience manifests itself in shame and hiding. For others, it, it leads to them just kind of ignoring the reality of God because they'd rather not feel that way. For other people, the guilty conscience forces them to, to mock Christians, um, to abuse those in the faith, because those individuals, they desperately need to convince themselves that they're not the ones with the problem. But make no mistake, all of these different approaches, at the root of them all, is the guilty conscience. 
And so even the faithful in the Old Covenant, they live with a gnawing sense of their own unholiness and, and this burden of repeating sacrifices that only covered over their sin. Until, verse 11. Verse 11 we read, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ appeared. That's the big turning point. He's called high priest of the good things that have come. So those of you who have been working through the Gospel of John in Life Group, we've already seen a number of hints of how this is true, how Jesus brought the good things to come. Uh, right from the start of his appearance in the flesh, John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and quite literally tabernacled among us. Jesus came to serve as a tabernacle in our midst. Or if you consider the lampstand, John 1, 4 says that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And if you think about the bread of the presence in the temple, or the manna in the, in the urn in the ark, Jesus himself provides a miraculous feast for 5,000. And then in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And if you think of that structure of the temple that leads mankind into the presence of God, Jesus tells Nathaniel, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In the very next chapter, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And we're told that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Old Covenant sanctuary was just a shadow of the good things to come, but with Christ, the good things have come. Jesus came to make the earthly temple irrelevant, and he did this by himself serving as the gateway into the most holy place. He went there himself, not, not the earthly holy of holies, but he went straight to the greater and more perfect heavenly tents, after which all of these crude by comparison temples were patterned. He did this he did what the earthly high priest could only prefigure. Jesus entered not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own righteous blood. And then the result, he secured an eternal redemption for his people. Eternal, not partial, not for one year, complete and forever. The Greek word for eternal there refers not only to the endless duration, but also it has the connotation of participating in the age to come. Remember how verses 8 and 9 told us that the way into the holy places would be opened when the present age is over. Well, our salvation, literally, unto the ages, means that the reality of the age to come is already able to be enjoyed in Christ right now. And these thoughts all lead us to the big conclusion of this section in verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of, of goats and bulls in sin and guilt offerings and the use of things like ashes of a heifer, that was a ceremony to cleanse people who had come into contact with dead bodies. These sorts of shadowy provisions and, and rituals, they, they did accomplish something in the Old Covenant time. They served like a band-aid to allow for a status of ceremonial cleanliness. And, and it created a picture of the sorts of things that aren't allowed in God's realm, that will not appear there. So these provisions were a gracious gift for that time before Christ appeared. But how much more effective is the blood of Christ? How much more? It's an, it's an exclamation of the superiority of the blood of Christ. It's something you can bank on. And notice that the reasoning of this passage is not just like how much more effective than the blood of bulls and goats is a man's blood. No, that's not the reasoning. It's not even how much more effective is the blood of a man without blemish. No, it's the logic is how much more effective than the blood of animals is the blood of Christ, the anointed God-man who through the eternal spirit offered himself. So not only is Christ's divinity in play, but also the agency of the Holy Spirit, which allowed Jesus to be both priest and sacrifice and, and made the effects of this unending. So this isn't just a trump card. It's like completely changes the rules of the game. We probably all believe that the blood of a man is worth more than the blood of a sheep. And we can kind of observe in world history that the blood of a great man can be worth more than the blood of many men. Think of a king or, or a great general. But what about the blood of Christ, who is the author of life himself? Each drop of blood had infinite value. And this is why one sacrifice could pay the redemption price for so many. The self-sacrifice of Jesus didn't merely purify the flesh, but it purifies our conscience forever. And when your sin is forgiven and your conscience is free, that means two things, this text shows us, two things. First, you're purified from dead works. All the things that we frantically do to try to justify ourselves before God, or sometimes that we, we do before to justify ourselves to other people, because we kind of use them as a proxy for, for the opinion of God. You know, this could be empty religious acts. It could be building career empires that will fall. It could be buying things that won't satisfy and won't last. It could be chasing ambitions that are, that are destined to end when our bodies hit the grave. All of these dead works, we're freed from them. We don't need them anymore when we embrace the work that Jesus accomplished for us. Secondly, we are freed to serve the living God. Freed to serve the living God. Now, if this doesn't sound like a good thing, like, what, I, I have to serve now? No, I'd say, if that doesn't sound like a good thing to you, you need to, we need to revisit whether or not you're in Christ. And, and I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, but for those of you who are, then I think you'll have a sense of excitement when you read this. Because this is what we were made for. Those with purified consciences, they find joy and fulfillment in serving God. And, and maybe they're even doing the very same things that, that were attempted before as dead works. They were attempted before out of, 
out of like a sense of bitter obligation or frantic determination. But they're not dead works anymore. Now they're love offerings to the living God. And this is a really big deal. Because in, in Joshua 24, 19, the, the leader Joshua told the people with great realism, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. Joshua understood the, the fickle nature of our hearts and the, the impossibility of fighting sin that feels persistent and damning. Only in Christ does the freed conscience begin to reject sin and delight in good. Because when sin is forgiven and God is on your side, then you feel the strength of this bright and ever-growing, truer identity. And that identity is also informed by this temple imagery that Jesus has now fulfilled. In 1 Peter 2, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a.k.a. temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I hope you get the excitement here, the role we've been given, the privilege to serve the living God. For now, only our high priest has gone into the most holy place in heaven. And we, as priests in his name, we serve as if in the outer holy place. We need no longer fear the presence of God. And a day is coming when we too will step into the most holy place. Or rather, we could say, it will expand to envelop us. You know, other than in the Pentateuch, when the, the instructions are given for uh, building the tabernacle, uh, there's only one other place in Scripture where the dimensions of a cube are given. Revelation 21. It describes the new heavens and the new earth as a city of God with the dimensions of a cube. It says its length and width and height are equal. You see, the most holy place will expand to encompass all the new creation. And we read in Revelation 21, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. So this theater set of, of temple, imagine it like that, like a, the set of a theater production. It was useful to teach the people of God about the coming salvation of God. But this symbolic stage was temporary because it was earthly. It was subject to change and defilement. And the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices were temporary because they couldn't accomplish something eternal. And this restrictive temple system was preparatory. It pointed the way to the person of Jesus Christ. And so this leaves us again this week with two questions. First, is an earthly system still your focal point for knowing God? Dead works, empty rituals, pandering for religious points and assurances for the afterlife? Or do you have a cleansed conscience that leads to joyful service? Look to Jesus because you can be given that freedom of a purified conscience today. He came to take us from a virtual experience of communion with God to the real deal.
And secondly, if you are keeping your distance from him, what exactly is keeping you from God? Is the sense of guilt, the feeling that you're dirty, that, that, is that what makes you uneasy in his presence? Does that make his people a threat to you? And the thought of facing him terrifying. So can, can you own that openly? Or does it appear with some sort of defense mechanism, like, like a smug disdain for all this redemption talk? Whatever the case, make no mistake, Christ did appear as high priest of the good things that have come. And you're invited to share in these good things. You've been given thousands of years of illustrations of why you need his sacrifice. So come with us on our journey into the most holy place. Because in his presence, there's fullness of joy and there's pleasures forevermore. Our good God, how do we even begin to thank you for Jesus, for the fulfillment of these types and shadows? How do we begin to rejoice to the extent we should knowing that, that we're freed from dead works and freed to joyful service of the living God. I want to thank you that you had this in mind for us in the very beginning. We want to thank you that you set it all out and you've put it in your holy word for us to see clearly. God, I pray that everyone in this room, their hope would be placed in nothing less than dwelling with you forever. Do that work in us. Let us find our acceptance only in the offering that Jesus has made on our behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.